from Massachusetts to Texas, Idaho to Alabama, this is American Radio Journal. On this edition, inflation continues to rage at historic high levels, but the most recent jobs report was good. So how fast will the Federal Reserve continue raising interest rates? David Beckworth from the Mercatus Center at George Mason University is here to discuss. Primary elections continue in various states, with Liz Cheney suffering a landslide loss in her bid to be re-elected to Congress. Scott Parkinson from the Club for Growth has the real story. Certificates of need continue to hinder innovation in the healthcare industry. For the latest example, Eric Baim of Reason Magazine talks with Anastasia Bowden from the Pacific Legal Foundation. And the impact of rampant inflation is being felt by families all across the nation. Dr. Paul Kangor from the Institute for Faith and Freedom at Grove City College has an American Radio Journal commentary. I'm Loman Henry, and welcome to American Radio Journal. The Federal Reserve has hiked interest rates by 75 basis points at each of its last two meetings in an effort to bring down the inflation rate, which remains historically high. So what will the Fed do next? For a reading of the tea leaves, we turn to David Beckworth. David is a senior research fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. He formerly served as an international economist with the U.S. Treasury Department. David, welcome back to American Radio Journal. David, tell us a bit about the Federal Reserve, the Federal Open Market Committee, what it is and why it is something that average Americans should care about. Well, it's the institution that is mandated by Congress by law to keep prices relatively stable. And by that, I mean keep inflation from coming moored, ungrounded. And so it's been mandated by Congress to keep inflation stable and it has an objective around 2% inflation. And that has been given to them, and they've been given some independence to do that, so they're not influenced by politics. That's the thinking. Inflation, of course, is anything but under control. A slight downward tick the past month, but it's still running at almost historic high levels here, David. The minutes of the last meeting of the Federal Open Market Committee finally were made public this past week. You've had an opportunity to review them. Did they give us any clues about what the Fed might do going forward? Well, the big question before the minutes came out was what would they reveal given that so much time has transpired since the meeting and also given that there's been a lot of new economic data that has come out. So you mentioned the inflation number that came out. So we had one month where inflation went down a little bit. We also had some GDP numbers that showed the economy weakening. On the other hand, we've had job growth that's been really robust. So there's, there's been a kind of a Jekyll and Hyde character to the economy. But what we learned in the minutes, and we can take that and apply it to what we know about the economy now, is that they are still very concerned about the high inflation. To quote them, the inflation remained unacceptably high. So they're firmly committed to bringing it down, and they acknowledge they may have to do that to the extent it may slow down the economy. They don't want to go there, but I think they're willing to go there if that's what it takes to get inflation back down to 2%. Is this a bit of a balancing act here, David, where they need to bring inflation under control, but if you raise interest rates too high too fast, you kick the country further into a recession? Can you talk a little bit about the tightrope that they're walking here? Oh, absolutely. As they tighten monetary policy, which means as they raise interest rates, 
it's going to affect credit conditions across the country. So everything from mortgage rates going up to car loans, student loans, uh, many kind of financing costs will be affected and have been affected already. We've already seen mortgage rates go up, and we've seen a decline in the housing sector. So housing starts are down, building permits are down. We've seen a little bit of softening in consumer spending. So we all already seen some signs of this working through the economy. And what they want to do is they want to slow it down just a little bit without actually causing an outright contraction or reduction in economic activity, kind of take the heat off of the economy, which would then lower inflation, but not so much so that we're thrown into a recession. However, I think the Fed is so committed to it. They're so worried about losing their credibility, about the public beginning to worry too much about inflation, that they're willing to risk walking us to the edge of a recession. And maybe we fall over, maybe we don't. But that, that's the chance. Keep inflation under control, but at the same time, you increase the risk of going into recession in the process. The last two rate hikes in June and July were 75 basis points. That's a rather historically high jump in interest rates as it is. Now, I know you're an economist and not a clairvoyant, David, but as we look forward here, the Fed's going to meet again in another month or so, and they're going to have to make a decision on another rate hike. From what you read in the minutes of the last meeting, anything in the tea leaves to indicate what they might do? My takeaway is they will probably do another 75 basis points or 0.75% increase in that September meeting. Um, I think it's not ex- exactly clear where they will go, but given the data that we have out, and then I would stress, and what I focus on is their undying commitment to return inflation to 2%. And I think they are so focused on that, they're willing to go and do another historic rate hike. If you look at the market right now, what the market thinks The market has them pushing rates up that high, and by the end of the year, getting interest rates up to 3.25% to 3.5. Right now, we're at 2.25 to 2.5, so another whole percentage point by the end of the year, and that could include another 0.75% increase. So that would be my takeaway. What could change that, though, is we have, again, some time before the September meeting. Um, New inflation numbers will come in. New job numbers will come in. So there could be new data that might change what they do, but I think overall they are still gunning to get inflation down to 2%, and that may mean a large interest rate hike in September. Coming up here in just a couple of weeks, Chairman Jerome Powell of the Fed is going to be giving a much-anticipated speech. Can you give us a little bit of a preview as to what we might be looking for in his comments? Well, I think he will speak to the balance sheet. Now, we're not certain for sure what he's going to cover, But I think a big issue is how is the Fed going to reduce the size of its balance sheet? It's still near $9 trillion in size. In September, they're going to start reducing the balance sheet by about $95 billion. These are big numbers. And the concern is that if you start scaling up the the decrease of the Fed's balance sheet, that that increase in size might be destabilizing in financial markets, might make people who lend to each other get a little concerned. So how they pace it, how they do it's important, and he may lay out the plans. For the average consumer here, David, the person who's sitting at their kitchen table trying to pay the monthly bills with inflation high, gas prices very high, coming down a little bit, but still very high, what impact does all of this have on them? 
one impact is that it may make life more manageable if the Fed can rein in inflation. And what that means, to be clear, is not that pr- prices will come down, but the rate of increase will, will stop. Um, if the Fed can do that, that would make life a lot more bearable, a lot more manageable, uh, be easier to make your budget meet. The potential for a recession, though, is as bad as it sounds. You could lose your job. So there's a lot of people suffering right now from inflation, and it doesn't hit everyone evenly. So it's, it's, it's a very fortunate thing, and the Fed wants to do away with it, but they may have to to you know, push us to, again to the edge of the cliff where there's a recession. And if they do that, then it affects our employment prospects. We have been talking with David Beckworth, who is a senior research fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, formerly served as an international economist with the U.S. Treasury Department. David, tell us a little bit about Mercatus and where can folks go to read your writings? The Mercatus Center is a research center that bridges the gap between academic ideas and real policy world solutions, and we cover a host of issues, not just monetary policy, and you can find our work at mercatus.org, and you can follow me and see some of my work at David Beckworth on Twitter. David Beckworth of the Mercatus Center. David, thank you for being with us. Thank you. Scott Parkinson at the Club for Growth. He has been keeping an eye on all these primary elections that are happening state by state all summer long. We're going to talk about the latest with him. Scott, good to have you here. Thanks for having me, Loman. Of course, the big news of the past week out in the state of Wyoming, Liz Cheney went down to a thunderous defeat. You and the Club for Growth were involved in that. Your thoughts as we parse through the result of the primary? Yeah, well, another impeacher bites the dust. Liz Cheney's been defeated by Harriet Hageman. It wasn't even close. Hageman ended up winning by about 40%. And I think what everybody saw this week were many proud Democrats wearing the typical pink stuff that a lot of the gender activists like to take out to Election Day. They were the ones bragging about voting for Liz Cheney. So there was a significant Dem crossover, and hardly any Republicans supported her for re-election despite the best efforts of Ms. Cheney and and her father, Dick Cheney, the former vice president. So uh, Cheney will obviously wrap up her time here in Congress and no longer be serving once January rolls around. A lot of people sort of look at this big vote that happened on whether or not to impeach Donald Trump following the January 6th riots. And when you look at race by race, all these candidates have been getting defeated or forced into retirement. And I think is that's going to be a, an indicator for other tough votes that Democrats want to put forward on Republicans uh, when it comes to 2023. And, you know, we'll probably have votes on the FBI raid of Mar-a-Lago and other Donald Trump-type votes that are going to be pretty revealing for the primary electorate. So that's something to sort of keep our eye on going forward. Going forward, we are next week going to have some key races in the states of Florida and Oklahoma. Let's start in the Sunshine State. What will voters there see next week? The biggest race that I'm really excited about is is the 13th Congressional District of Florida. Club for Growth PAC has endorsed Anna Paulina Luna in that race over Kevin Hazlett and Amanda Mackey and a couple of others that are running. That one's going to be a, a dogfight. We know that the polling is tightening and that it's going to be just one of those races that is determined on Election Day. Early voting is, is underway in Florida, but nonetheless, we expect Luna to, to pull out a close victory there. We also have big, big races in the 7th Congressional District, which is sort of the Orlando media market. 
and you've got Corey Mills taking on Anthony Sabatini. That should be a really interesting race to watch. That one became open following redistricting and the retirement of one of sort of the moderate blue dog Democrats, Stephanie Murphy. And I say that tongue in cheek because obviously she's supported the Pelosi agenda all along, but she was effectively forced into retirement. So that'll be another Republican pickup from either Corey Mills or Anthony Sabatini. And there's uh, several other candidates that are running, but they're the top two. They're in the mix. Then if we slide over a little bit north to the Jacksonville area in the 4th District, State Senator Aaron Bean is widely expected to run away with that race. So he should be a, a safe seat for Republicans. And through redistricting, that's a net gain of another seat in Florida. We also have some runoff elections taking place in Oklahoma this coming week. There is the uh, runoff to fill the uh, vacancy for Jim Inhofe, who's going to be retiring from the United States Senate, longtime senator from Oklahoma. Mark Wayne Mullen is a current U.S. representative from the 2nd Congressional District, and he is taking on T.W. Shannon. So the winner of that race will be a significant favorite to win in November, unless there's you know some sort of a massive scandal. I, I fully expect that one to, to stay in the GOP aisle of the United States Senate. And because Mark Wayne Mullen is running for the United States Senate, he can't run for the House. That created an opening in the 2nd Congressional District, and we expect Josh Burkeen to pull out that race over State Representative Fricks. In these runoff elections, you're often looking to see exactly how somebody can get to 50%. And when Fricks fell short on the first round and and uh, Burkeen finished second, there's a lot of folks that when they go to consolidate that support don't really like the front runner for some reason. And obviously uh, the club is, is for uh, Josh Burkeen in that race as well. It is also the season where we start seeing various polls come out here, Scott, in races for U.S. Senate around the country. Can you talk a little bit about the the validity of these polls and how much stock do we really want to put in summertime polling? Yeah, you know, what I would actually say is the key thing in, in a lot of these polls that come out from universities that are partnering with uh, maybe a, a local newspaper or another TV media entity is the methodology in these these polls are you know either based on sort of out of date approaches to measuring the views of constituents and voters in a in a district or a state or you know sometimes they are accurate and they're an anomaly compared to all the other polls that are inaccurate but we're seeing polls right now that are being released by various entities throughout Florida and Pennsylvania and Ohio and and they're all showing that the Democrats are in plumb position to to take these seats and to maintain their Senate majority. You know, the way that I kind of feel right now is this 2022 election is very much a referendum on Joe Biden and his administration. We still know that uh, the American people are feeling that not-so-hidden tax increase of inflation, which is at a 40-year high. We still know that we're in an economic recession. We still know that wages are suffering due to the high levels of inflation. We know that the American people are having these kitchen table conversations all throughout America. We know that the U.S. economy is incredibly sick following the COVID pandemic, and we just haven't really had that strong recovery that we're looking for when it comes to economic growth. The, the jobs report that came out a week or so ago and indicated that there was several hundred thousand people 
that were added to the labor market with new jobs, those were actually people uh, in many situations that were having to take second jobs to cover their bills. And when you think about these decisions that people are having to make, really tough decisions to spend more time away from their family so that they can make ends meet, I think that that's a, a pretty sad situation across America. So I don't really buy the polling that shows Tim Ryan beating J.D. Vance in Ohio. I don't buy the polling that shows John Fetterman beating Mehmet Oz in Pennsylvania. And I certainly don't buy the polling in Florida that shows Val Demings beating Marco Rubio. I think that all three of those seats are competitive, but I think that the Republican nominee in all those situations is going to be victorious. And I also think that Republicans stand a very good chance at winning back the United States Senate by picking up seats in Georgia, Arizona, Nevada, and possibly New Hampshire. We, of course, will be keeping an eye on all of those races and talking about significant developments in those races as we head through the remaining weeks of summer and the fall months. We're going to do all that with Scott Parkinson from the Club for Growth. And Scott, tell us a bit about the club. The Club for Growth is a membership organization based out of Washington, D.C. If anybody wants to check out the candidates that we've endorsed or actually sign up to become a member of Club for Growth for free, check us out at our website, clubforgrowth.org. Scott Parkinson at the Club for Growth. Scott, we'll talk to you next week. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Certificates of need are one way the healthcare industry blocks out competition and innovation. Eric Baim of Reason Magazine learns more from Anastasia Bowden of the Pacific Legal Foundation. Imagine if you were trying to open, say, a grocery store, and before you could do it, you had to go to your local government or your state government and ask permission. And not only did you have to ask permission, but then you knew that the state government was going to turn around and ask all the other grocery stores near you if they would give you permission to open. You probably wouldn't get permission from the grocery store down the street because they don't want more competition. But as crazy as that situation is, that's exactly what happens in many states in this country when it comes to healthcare facilities. And it's one of the reasons why there is uh, such a shortage of available healthcare in some places. And that is what we are going to take a look at today. Hi, folks. I'm Eric Bain with Reason Magazine. Thanks for joining us on this edition of American Radio Journal. My guest today is Anastasia Bowden. She is a senior attorney at the Pacific Legal Foundation. And uh, that's that group, PLF, has just launched a new case in Georgia challenging a regulation known as a certificate of need law that has effectively banned a new birthing center from opening because the hospitals nearby don't want it to be there. Anastasia, thanks for taking some time and uh, talking us through this uh, kind of crazy situation. Thanks for having me. Just in case people aren't aware of what certificate of need laws are, we should probably start there with the basic and what they force new businesses, in this case, uh, a new birthing center in, in Georgia, to uh, get permission to operate from their competitors. Yeah, it's important to note about certificate of need laws that although they're a licensure requirement, they are nothing like typical licensure requirements because they have nothing to do with the person's qualifications or health or safety. They relate solely to whether the government thinks another business is needed. So you have to prove to the satisfaction of some bureaucrat that you're needed. And the really pernicious part is that existing businesses can protest your application and show up at your hearing and testify that you're not needed. And what we find in litigation over these laws is that applications that are protested are routinely denied. But where you're lucky enough for some reason to not get a protest, you're approved. So in reality, these laws very often amount to a competitor's veto over new competition. 
You guys at PLF have just launched this case in Georgia. It's a federal lawsuit that's uh, challenging the state's certificate of need regulations. Tell us a little bit about what's going on there, because this facility, the, the birth center that's trying to open there, has got like widespread support, right, from the community where it is, is potentially going to operate. And pretty much the only opposition in this case is coming from the existing hospitals in the that's area. That's exactly right. Uh, this, this birth center is wanted, is needed by moms in Georgia, where maternal outcomes are abysmal, by the way. It ranks lower than some third world countries in terms of infant mortality and, and maternal outcomes. And so we really need these types of places in Georgia. They are legal. And the Department of Community Health denied our client uh, permission to start her birth center for no other reason that she couldn't get permission from the existing hospitals nearby. It didn't say that she wasn't qualified. It didn't say that she didn't have the right types of people on staff or wouldn't follow health or safety regulations. It's just that she couldn't secure an agreement from the local hospitals. That alone was good enough to get her denied. And so in our lawsuit, we say that this affects two really important constitutional rights. Of course, the rights of mothers to give birth under the safe and comfortable circumstances of their choice, including birth centers, which are different than hospitals in terms of the services that they provide. It's very personal. But also the right of people like Katie, our client, to earn a living. That's a fundamental constitutional right in this country that needs to be protected in the court. Yeah, like so many economic regulations, too, it's one of those things where you don't see the costs necessarily, right? They're not obvious. The parent or, or the mother who just doesn't have an opportunity to have choice about where their child is born, right? That doesn't show up necessarily in any statistics, but or the child who doesn't receive the sort of care that maybe they uh, they need, that doesn't necessarily show up either uh, because this thing just never exists or these competitors just never exist in that marketplace. We're talking with Anastasia Bowden. She's a senior attorney at the Pacific Legal Foundation talking about this new uh, certificate of need lawsuit that uh, PLF has just launched. Now, Anastasia, this is uh, uh, one of these battles that, that is going on in lots of places in lots of different uh, states and, and its organizations like PLF that are fighting it. There have been some recent positive developments in the fight against con laws, though. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, I think largely thanks to COVID, you know, one silver lining of all of this is that certificate of need laws exacerbated shortages of healthcare providers during COVID, because if you wanted to expand your service, you had to go through this unnecessary certificate of need program, which delayed, you know, the expansion of all these hospitals or, or surgical centers or what have you. And so I think this has brought the problem of certificate of need to the public. They really felt it. They felt the effects and saw them firsthand. And so we have seen a push for reform in many states. And in fact, the Center for Medicare and Medicaid just eliminated a similar requirement for ambulatory surgical centers that, that would apply to our clients in Georgia, this birth center. But even the Center for Medicaid and Medicare said it's ridiculous and just an unnecessary blockade to new services, so we're not going to require it for, for surgical centers. So I think as people um, become aware of, of these laws, we will see pushback because there's just no defense of them. They don't, they don't improve public health and safety, and everybody knows it. And so hopefully with some pushback and our lawsuits, we'll get some positive change. Yeah, it's kind of crazy. We don't have time to get into all the history here uh, today, but uh, the, these laws were passed in a lot of states because Congress kind of forced states to do it back in the 1970s. And then by like the late 80s, Congress reversed itself. And, and since then, you've had not just Centers for Medicare and Medicaid, but also like the FTC, several different federal commissions and organizations and, and entities telling states, no, 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 this was a mistake. Repeal these laws. But of course, they stay on the books because the hospitals like them a lot. That's a, it's, it's a fascinating story of, of regulatory capture and it's 
one that certainly hurts consumers, hurts uh, mothers in Georgia in this case. And we appreciate Anastasia Bowden and the folks at PLF for putting some light on this and uh, and bringing some legal heat to it as well. Anastasia, thanks for talking to us today. Thanks for having me. Bye. And again, that is Anastasia Bowden. She's a senior attorney at the Pacific Legal Foundation. You can check out more of PLF's work online at pacificlegal.org. For Reason Magazine, I'm Eric Baim. Catch me right back here next week on another edition of American Radio Journal. The rampant rate of inflation is having a real-world impact on family budgets. Dr. Paul Kengor from the Institute for Faith and Freedom at Grove City College gives us some examples on this American Radio Journal commentary. Last week, I rented a car, a standard SUV. I do that often, but this time was very different. The price was shocking. It was $650 to rent from 4.30 p.m. on Friday until 4.30 p.m. on Tuesday, before insurance and other costs. I actually didn't need the car until Sunday evening to drive to Washington, D.C. for a lecture that I was giving on Monday morning. The vehicle, it sat unused in my driveway until Sunday evening. So why did I rent the car starting on Friday? Because the rental place closes on Friday for the entire weekend. It's no longer open even on Saturday morning. If you want a car for pickup on Sunday or Saturday, well, the charge starts on Friday. So why is the rental place no longer open on weekends? Because it can't find employees. That, of course, is a chronic problem everywhere. It's one of many very dismal signs of the economic times. The day that I booked my reservation for my car, my wife and I had just returned from a two-night getaway at a nice lakeside hotel. Both nights at the hotel restaurant, we had to order the buffet. We hate buffets. We detest buffets. You eat too much at a buffet. It takes heroic self-control to not pig out at a buffet. So why did the hotel restaurant only offer buffets? because they can't find enough employees to be waiters or waitresses. As everyone listening right now surely knows, this too is a problem for restaurants everywhere in America. The economic statistics in America, dismal as they are, are not capturing true unemployment. A huge number of people simply are not working. There are plenty of jobs, but people aren't filling them. And meanwhile, inflation rages. It's the highest since 1981. It can be felt in practically every sector, from groceries to gasoline to cars. And that brings me back to my car rental. My rental price was so outrageous that I used my personal points to reduce the price by 150 bucks. I couldn't bring myself to charge my hosts to reimburse me for that much. They might never ask me back to speak again. I probably won't even give them my gasoline receipts. Those two are rather frightening, are they not? So why didn't I drive my own car? Well, that's another grim tale of the economic times. We have three cars for our large family. The 2015 Chrysler Town & Country must remain home with my wife and kids. Another is a 2005 Mitsubishi that my oldest son bought last summer. It has 150,000 miles on it. The price he paid was so exorbitant that my wife and I had to help him out. He had just gotten a full-time job out of college and needed a car. And we were proud of him, insisting that he buy it himself. But he couldn't afford it. We chipped in. He was left with about 200 bucks in his nearly wiped-out savings account. The third car is our 2010 Ford E350. It has about 200,000 miles on it. It needed a new transmission. Price, 3300 bucks. Why didn't I just buy a new van? Because the price of new vans, as people listening probably know, is not only obscene, it is unconscionable. 
I refuse. And used cars, even worse. Inflation in America is terrible. The economy, terrible. My personal anecdotes here, just a few isolated examples from a typical day or week in the life, are illustrative of what so many Americans are struggling with. These are bad economic times, and sadly, they're unlikely to improve anytime soon. How bad will it get? I'm not optimistic, and you shouldn't be either. We are either headed for recession or already mired in recession, and this one is not going to be a mild one. For American Radio Journal, I'm Paul Kengore. Thanks for listening. American Radio Journal is heard on public affairs-minded radio stations all across the country, including KLNGAM in Omaha, Nebraska, WLMRAM in Chattanooga, Tennessee, along with WSKYAM in Asheville, North Carolina. American Radio Journal is produced weekly by the Lincoln Institute of Public Opinion Research, Incorporated. The Lincoln Institute is completely funded through the generosity of individuals, corporations, and philanthropic foundations, which underwrite the costs of this program. Comments and opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Lincoln Institute or of this radio station. Learn more about American Radio Journal and hear expanded versions of some interviews aired on this program. Please visit our website, AmericanRadioJournal.com. I'm Loman Henry. Thank you for listening to American Radio Journal. American Radio Journal, lighting the brush fires of freedom.